switched on, but I don't see a light. Okay, gotcha. But you can see, you can hear me okay? All right, great. I'm not a George Whitfield. I don't have, I don't have his voice. You know, I, I've been told, well, church history says that he was able to preach out in a cornfield to thousands of people, and I'm thinking, I mean, there's a lot of ears in a cornfield, but he's like, still, how can you possibly, you know, hear um, that? I, I just, I thank the Lord for uh, microphones because... I was born with a wimpy, a wimpy voice. You want this right here? Okay, glorious. Okay, thank you. All right, so I do want to highlight a couple things. Um, maybe at the beginning of each um, session, I'll just draw attention to some of the resources that are out there and, and why I chose them when, um, when Keith said, hey, do you have any books you want to recommend? You know, we'll have some of your books, but are there other books you want to recommend to those who attend? Um, so let me do that. Um, let me recommend three parenting resources that have been super helpful to us over the years. Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Very foundational book, how to think about uh, parenting from a biblical perspective. Primarily getting to the heart of your child, not just dealing with behavior. So it's not behavior modification. It's not moralism. Um, this is how do we prayerfully employ God's word like we talked about last night in in getting to the heart of our children. We use this in our church as a foundational discipling of parents resource, uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. It also comes now in video format and workbook and all that. So um, I also used it in when I was pastoring in Sheboygan for 22 years. I used this I don't know how many times. Uh, this would be a great study for you. Again, it's it's not just for the kids. It's not, well, I have an angry kid. I should read this. Um, it, it really is so much self-counseling first, like we talked about last night, looking in the mirror of the Word of God. How do we as parents need to be sanctified constantly by the Holy Spirit through His Word? Um, uh, but it also extremely practical. The subtitle is Practical Help for the Prevention and Cure of Anger in Children. Uh, it really is an excellent tool, The Heart of Anger by, by Lou Priolo. And then my wife and I wrote this little one for the Lifeline mini-book series, Help My Toddler Rules the House. Um, and um, so these are just, again, biblical truths and principles that, that we have learned over the years in raising ten toddlers. Um, there are times where... Um, you run into issue where a home is perhaps a child-centered home rather than a Christ-centered home, and and how do we how do we work uh, away from that? How do we, we get back to Christ being the center of the home, not the child being the center of the home? So this is again following the pattern of last night and today. Um, it's really it's looking at the scriptures in our hearts as parents, the hearts of our children, but then. As it moves on, gets gets very practical in um, how to establish ex- expectations, biblical expectations. There's a section in here um, called the Seven Laws of Correction, which has to do. Originally, it was called that chapter was called the Seven Laws of Spanking, and um, it's the publisher just said 
we're translating this into other languages for other countries, and that that word um, isn't translating always well. I'm going to turn this one off. I did turn it off, so I don't know what's going on. But anyway, um, how to carefully and wisely, when when needed, uh, apply physical correction um, to a child um, in a way that is not anywhere near what the world calls abuse and what we should call abuse. Um, So how do we distinguish between biblical physical discipline that Proverbs talks so often about and what uh, is happening too often in our culture? Um, Again, the pendulum that we see is either no discipline for children because um, that's evil, that's wrong, we should never do that. The other is is just overcorrection to the point where whereby we give to our children immense amounts of love and nourishment, but also the correction that's needed. Um, so that's that's really important. And then two um, books that might help you grow just in your own walk with the Lord um, that that they have out there today. This is a 31-day devotional, Anxiety, Knowing God's Peace. Um, I wrote this a number of years ago, 2019 it came out. Um, it still remains the number one seller in this series uh, of 31-day devotionals. It's Frankly, it's just something that's grown out of my own deep struggle with anxiety over the years. Um, and what the Lord has taught me from Scripture. So each day begins with a Scripture passage and then kind of walks through that Scripture in in how to think um, in in relation to anxiety. And then this one, brand new, just came out in September. Um, Publisher said it's already in its second printing. It's doing so well. So Remade, um, Embracing Your Complete Identity in Christ. And what this does is walk through... um, three lenses of Christian identity. The big lens is we are in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. Now, how do we look at who we are through that through that lens of who we are in Christ at our struggles with sin and our response to suffering? So the three lenses are, are uh, saint, sinner, and sufferer. And those are the three categories that we find ourselves in as, as believers. We are saints, first and foremost, chosen by God. We are, we are seated in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. We are secure in that. But how does that then impact our daily struggle with sin and temptation in this world? And in the, the world, the flesh didn't just save us to take us to heaven someday. God saved us to transform us, to remake us into the image of Christ And the end result of that someday is in his perfect timing that we will be forever with the one who died and rose again for us. So I hope that those will be um, an encouragement. And again, nourish your own soul, keep you growing as mom and dad so that as you are discipling your kids, what's going to come out is not programmatic, manufactured, formulaic stuff that you get from a lot of Christian parenting books but it's just going to be the natural outpouring of what Christ is doing in you. That's what our kids need. Our kids need to see authentic Christian parents, not perfect parents, 
but authentic Christian parents who know what it means to be saved from our sins and, and to be walking with God. And in some days, that's really hard. In other days, it's easier. Um, and sometimes there's, there's a lot of suffering that, that the Lord takes us through in his providence. And how do we look at that and, and learn from it? So I hope that those are, are a help and encouragement to you. All right, so let's um, let's just briefly review where we went last night because I, I understand there's a few of you here uh, today who were not able to be here last night. So let me just quickly kind of wrap uh, wrap up what we spent uh, talking about last night. We we started looking at Timothy and the influence of his mother and grandmother uh, in Second Timothy, and and how that leads us to understand that a big part of what God expects from us as parents, as believing parents, is to model for our children what it looks like to love the Lord, our God, with all the grace of God. Um, and so we, we talked about testing our own faith. In other words, being honest before God and therefore then honest before our children in our own walk with the Lord. We, we looked at some common errors to avoid fatalism, which is, which leads to passive parenting, um, easy decisionism. That is, I just want to get my kid to, to make a decision for Christ. That's, that's my goal. Just make that decision. Make that decision. Um, and how that can actually lead to some real um, bad consequences um, in, in the spiritual lives of our kids when we, when we think we are the ones who save our kids instead of God is the one who saves our kids. And he, in his providence, uses us as a part of that process, whether it be seed planting, watering, or harvesting, or a combination of, of all three, but to recognize that God is the one who saves our kids. And false assurance. In other words, uh, if we have times where we struggle with assurance as well. So testing our own faith. In other words, we talked last night about how gospel-shaped parenting begins with gospel-shaped parents. Okay, it's not a how-to thing. It's not a, okay, give me ten steps to raising perfect children. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how do we walk alongside the Holy Spirit in his work in our children's lives uh, to lead them to Christ. Uh, then we talked about a, uh, another signpost along the way of, of parenting, uh, and that is treasuring God with Treasuring God and His Word. So, treasuring the Word of God. How how important that is that our children see again not perfect parents, but parents who are who are really striving to walk with God. Do they see us reading our Bibles? Um, do they do they understand that the Word of God is the final authority over our home? That not even Dad is the final authority. That Dad, yes, under the headship. Uh, that God has given to the husband and, and the responsibilities that God has given to the father to be the spiritual leader of the home, mom and dad live under authority as well. Every one of us is a person who lives under authority. And so we live under the authority of God. Uh, one of the ways that this sometimes came out when our children were younger, um, you know, one time I remember one of our kids asking, you know, why, Daddy, why do you spank me? And well, I spank you because I love you. I want to correct you. I want you to grow up to be wise. But I also spank you because if I don't spank you, then God will spank Daddy. 
And they would look at me like, so how does God spank daddy? <laughs> well, that's a hard one. <laughs> it's a really hard one uh, to answer. But many thanked me for the example that I had set in reading my Bible every day. And it wasn't something like I was trying to do in the sense of, you know, children, watch me, see me. I'm in my recliner. I'm reading my Bible every morning. It wasn't ever that. It's just she she said, Dad, I know you you didn't see me watching you, but I was watching you. And I'd see you when I got up early in the morning, and I'd see you reading your Bible. It's just it's just been a part of my life since I got saved in 1984. You know, God just put me into this discipleship group that trained me in the importance of just meditating on the word of God, whether it's a few verses or whether it's a few chapters. Uh, in some in some days when it feels like, man, I didn't get anything out of that. In other days it's like, whoa, I got some riches here that I'm going to live on for a long time. Um, but just that discipline of understanding that I need the bread of God upon the Lord for everything. So we talked about the importance of treasuring God's word and the impacts that that has in our own hearts first as gospel-shaped parents. All right, so let's move on from there, and let's begin to move into a little bit of the how-to kind of part of the conference. In other words, how do we apply this philosophy of gospel-shaped parenting to the actual way that we parent? So we're going to look at signpost uh, number three now, which is to train them to fear the Lord. And uh, open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. I want you to just see the importance of this concept of the fear of the Lord. Because this was once a very common concept among believers, but it really has fallen out of favor um, over recent decades and, and so many of us need to refresh our mind as to what it means to fear the Lord and why it's so important. But Proverbs chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Do understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the very opening verses of Proverbs, which is a, one of the wisdom books of the Bible, written primarily by Solomon, not exclusively, he is, the, he is the editor. And the whole point of those first, uh, first seven verses is that all knowledge that is worth knowing begins with fearing the Lord. All truth originates with God. God is the author of truth. That, that the fear of the Lord, verse 7, is the beginning of knowledge. That's the foundation of knowledge. And, and that's what we're, as Christian parents, we're thinking of in, in the education of our children. We want them to understand the fear of the Lord. And um, then notice in verses 8, 9, and 10 that Solomon is writing this and compiling the Proverbs for his first audience, which is his son. 
Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So Solomon compiled the book of Proverbs first for his son, and we now are the beneficiaries thousands of years later. And we continue to be because the Holy Spirit is the one who led him to put this all together. But we see here that here is a father who is focusing on one really big concept, which is the fear of the Lord. This is what he wants his son to get. And so he says, son, listen. Listen to your father's instruction. Don't forget your mother's teaching. Why does he say it in that order? Well, I believe it's because fathers have this responsibility before God to be the spiritual leaders of our homes. But it is not exclusively our role. Our wives, the moms of the kids, have a massive uh, part in the training up. Listen to your mother's teaching. So this is team parenting, you know. I mean, it's too big of a work for any one person, and that's one of the reasons why we as churches need to be especially conscious of the single parents in our churches, to come alongside them and be the church, be the family for them, to help them and support them in the raising of their children, um, because even even a two-parent home needs the church. How much more so would a single parent? And so fathers and mothers both Involved Fathers primarily being the ones who will stand before God someday for the spiritual nourishment of all those under his care. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, R.C. Sproul writes this about the fear of the Lord. He says the focus here is on a sense of awe and respect for the magic or employment. Do they see in us Respect for God's authority structures. And then do we hold them accountable to live within God-ordained authority structures? So when they have problems with teachers at, at school, do we take the side of our children immediately without investigating the situation and badmouth the teacher because the teacher's always wrong because our kid's always right? <laughs> Or do we respect God's authority structures and we go and talk to the teacher and find out what really happened and see if there's correction that's needed in our children or if perhaps the teacher wasn't fully aware of the whole picture and there can be some mutual adjustment of thinking. So how, how we handle those kinds of things is so important. There are so many parents who just always automatically take the side of their children. Johnny is always right. And we shouldn't do anything to ever offend Johnny's feelings. Man, you're setting that guy up to live in prison someday. Because we all are people who live under authority. And so, from the very beginning, that's what we're trying to instill uh, in our children. We deal with that in that little booklet I mentioned uh, my wife and I cover that pretty extensively. We even talk about the importance that the father take the the primary role, even in the correction and discipline, not the exclusive role, because dad's not always home. But there needs to be that primary role that the father has in correction. 
So what does it mean then to fear the Lord? Well, the heart attitude is the key. Heart attitude is the key. It begins in the heart. When the attitude of our heart is reverence for the of their heart, if, if all you are doing is correcting their behavior, like, Johnny, if you don't do that, then you'll get a star on the chart in the refrigerator. If that's all you do, and I'm not against charts and stars and rewards in their proper place within biblical theology. However, if that's all you're doing and you're not addressing the heart and you're not talking to him about how what he's doing is offensive to God and how he needs to change his attitude toward God and toward whoever he sinned against, then you're just, you're parenting in moralism and you're not really doing all that much different than someone like B.F. Skinner would have advocated in his behavioristic model of training children. we got to get to the heart. I already drew attention to you, uh, for you to um, Ted Tripp's book, but uh, listen to, to this quote from, from that book. The central focus of parenting is the gospel. The central focus of parenting is the gospel. You need to direct not simply the behavior of your children, but the attitudes of their hearts. You need to show them not just the what of their sin and failure, but the why. Your children desperately need to understand not only the external, what they did wrong, but also the internal, why they did it. You must help them see that God works from the inside out. Therefore, your parenting goal cannot simply be well-behaved children. Your children must also understand why they sin and how to recognize internal change. And this starts even at young, you know, young ages, um, whereby, personally, for us as parents, we did not only correct our children for behavior. We did not only discipline them for behavior. We actually began disciplining them for their attitudes, usually before before their behavior. You know, if, if I see them roll their eyes at my wife, there's some issues there. And it's not just the rolling of the eyes. You know, you will never roll your eyes again, ever again. And this will be the consequence. If I only say that, and I don't say, so what was going on inside your heart when you rolled your eyes at your mom? You were disres- Were you disrespecting? Yeah, I was disrespecting her. What does the Bible say about disrespect towards your mom? So those questions, we're, we're interacting with them, trying to get to the why. Why did you do what you do? Or an older child, like I had to recently do with one of my sons, who was just speaking down to his siblings. And I just said, have you noticed a pattern in your, in your interaction with your siblings? Yeah, it does. And so we could talk about Philippians 2 and how we are called to model the humility of Christ, which means we should then consider others as being more important than ourselves. So how does that affect how we serve one another? How does that affect how we speak to one another? And this is where we as parents as well can can model this. There have been so many times I've had to go to my kids and say, kids, I need you to forgive me the way that I just spoke to your mom was sinful. I was impatient. I was critical. I had a bad attitude. I had an edge in my voice. I was harsh. I need you to forgive me. Will you forgive me? 
And I don't know how many times I've had to do, you know, that last part, will you forgive me, um, in the course of still raising our ten children. Never once did I have any of my children say, well, I'm going to have to think about that, Dad. Immediately they say, yeah, I forgive you. Of course I forgive you, Dad. So our kids need to see that recognition that we are fellow sinners and strugglers who are trying to become like Jesus, and that's what we are hoping for them as well. So it's the attitude that needs to be corrected. Also, um, we need to be in awe of God. What, What does that mean, to be in awe of God? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 33, 8. Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. There's a connection in the Bible, even in the New Testament, uh, between this fear of God and awesome is used in, in today's world for anything and everything. You know, you go to a restaurant and you say, that was an awesome pizza. You know, you say, we're in Green Bay. We have an awesome football team. Or isn't it awesome that this is Hunter's Weekend, you know? Uh, You you hear gunshots all over the place this weekend. All those things are good and wonderful in their proper place and, and blessings from God. But... Sometimes I wonder if we've lost the real meaning of that word, you know, because when you look at the original meaning of that word, you realize there there actually is only one person who ever should be called awesome, you know, and that's God. So the more we can just kind of work on that, I think we'll be we'll be better off. But um, so we need to remember that the gospel is what makes it possible. It is the blood of the Lamb of God that was shed for us so that we could be saved and we then have a proper biblical fear of God, not a cowering kind of ducking fear of God, but a healthy, reverential awe of who God is and the immense love that he has toward us in Christ. It's, it's just amazing. We need to protect the marriage of punishment and mercy. Um, think about it this way. you know, How is it possible that God, who is so supremely holy and righteous, could ever have a relationship with us, being as sinful as we are? Well, the only answer to that is Calvary. Christ on Calvary is the only answer for that. That's how God <laughs> preserved his righteousness upheld his justice and opened the gate for the mercy to flow toward us in Christ. Psalm 85.10, righteousness and peace kissed each other. When I think of that verse, I think of Calvary. That's when righteousness and peace kissed each other. God's righteousness was upheld His justice was satisfied. Sin was punished. And it opened the door to peace with God for us as sinners. I love Jerry Bridges. He's been discipling me through his writings 
since the year I was saved, 1984. The first adult Sunday school class I ever got involved in was uh, Discipline, uh, or The Pursuit of Holiness, uh, Jerry's first book. And, and he is still awe before him. We would gladly join the seraphs in calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But sin did enter the world. And because of his holiness, God now reveals himself as the hater of sin and the just punisher of sinners. But he also reveals himself in the person of his son as a merciful and gracious savior. Our awe of his holiness can be joined with amazement at his love. This is why whenever we have had to, over the years, um, use physical discipline in our children, for our children, we've always ended it with prayer and talking about Jesus. And talking about how God has made a way for our sin to be corrected. And, and we can be forgiven by God. And, and then to pray together. If the child's old enough, you know, have them pray first. And then you follow it up with praying for your child. It could be as simple as a three-year-old saying, you know, dear God, forgive me for hitting my brother. That was sin. Thank you for Jesus who takes my sin away. Using every discipline opportunity as a way to massage the gospel into their heart is so valuable to call attention to what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Salvation comes to those who know they need it. And so the more we can help our children to understand their need for salvation through gently applying these truths at appropriate times, so what's your attitude toward God? What's your attitude toward his word? Um, you and I need to be fearing the Lord if we're going to be raising children who fear the Lord as well. Okay, well, let's move on then to the fourth signpost. And that is teach them that God is awesome. Teach them that God is awesome. As I already mentioned, um, you know, that uh, awesome is used in our day and age uh, for everything from a pizza to a cheeseburger to a football game, um, you know, and and I'm not I'm not you know trying to be some hard nosed killjoy and just say to you don't ever use that word. I'm just trying to draw your attention to the fact that um, if everything is awesome, then nothing is awesome, you know. Um, and so let's let's talk about how awesome God is. He is awesome. Um, the word awesome means something that inspires awe. So in the Bible, awesome is used of God and of his works. That's why we could say God is awesome, but we could also stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, that is awesome. The Grand Canyon is awesome. I mean, it's an awesome work of God. And, and this is found all over uh, the Bible. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Exodus 15:11. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. Psalm 47, 2. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great king over all the earth. 
Psalm 66, 5. Come and see what God has done. He has awesome deeds for mankind. There's an example of how, how you see in the Bible, God is awesome, but also his works are awesome. The things that God does are just incredible. And, and so he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our lives revolving around him. And when we see God in all of his glory, we're going to have the kind of response that the prophet Isaiah had. When he saw God, holy, 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 now the angels worshiping God, he fell down. And he said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and so on. And so as we lift up God, then we see ourselves for what we really are. Okay? I like to say it this way. Um, lately I've been doing a lot of podcast interviews about my new book, Remade, and people have said, well, you know, what, what's the story behind that book? Well, it's a long story, but one of the stories is this, that think back to when God called Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses asked two questions. Who are you, God, and who am I? And isn't that the two, the fundamental? So if we want our kids to understand who they are, because believe me, the world is telling them who they think they should be. And it's everywhere. It's in the commercials. It's in the Disney movies. It's in the non-Disney movies. It's in the school system. It's everywhere. It's in cartoons for the youngest of children. So what's our job as parents? Teach them who God is, and then they'll understand who they are. Because we don't get to create our identity. We derive our identity from who God is and who he made us to be. So important. Well, what are three truths that we should teach? God is the creator of all. That's really where it starts. And and none of my children ever questioned that God was the creator. I mean, as as young as as whatever age it was when they started to to realize that that things around them were just beautiful. No issue. God made that. Wow. Oh, are you sure, Dad, that God made that? You know, can you imagine a three-year-old saying that? I mean, children just naturally are in awe of God as the creator and the things that he has done. It's so foundational to everything that it is the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if we want to teach our children who God is and why God is awesome, let's start where the Bible starts, which is God is the awesome creator. He's the creator of all. We need to instill in our children an awe for God as creator because that then is really the starting point of accountability. Right? I mean, why are we accountable to God? Because he's the creator and we are not. That's the most foundational understanding. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 1. That's why every person on the face of the planet is accountable to God. And it's why we spend 
millions and millions and millions of dollars as churches sending missionaries all over the world, training them to speak other languages and read other languages so that they can translate the Bible into other languages because every person on this planet is accountable to God and must hear the truth of Jesus. Our kids are accountable to God just like we are. So this becomes really the the most firm anchoring point for our children. In this, believers are saying that. God has instilled the conscience within every person. So even the conscience of an unbeliever who understands the most basic common sense things says this world is insane. And so we as Christian parents have the opportunity to train our children in the ways and knowledge of God. And, and I hope that... Um, you are not like I am in the sense that you take so many of our freedoms for granted. I'm learning and <laughs> growing in that. But just when you see what's happening all over the world and you realize the freedom that we have as Christians here in this nation, someday we may lose it. But we have incredible freedom to train up our children in the ways and knowledge of God that I pray it never goes away. God is the creator of all. God is also a hard worker. This is an interesting truth to teach your children, you know, from the very beginning. You know, why do we have uh, our three-year-old son vacuuming the living room? Because God is a worker and he happened to be the better vacuumer in the house. I mean, he's still amazing in cleaning the house, but he just, he was great. And so, you, you know, you buy a lightweight vacuum because you want to teach them to vacuum. As soon as they can walk. I mean, you can think of, I mean, my wife thought of all kinds of clever things. Like, as soon as they could walk, you know, the toddler could at least take the dirty diaper and take it and put it into the diaper pail. That was not too much work for them. It's just from the very beginning, what are little ways that we can begin to help our children understand that we live in a world that is filled with lots of responsibilities. And, and, I mean, I know parents of adult children who are still picking up their, after them. But you know what your kids can do. Um, and challenge them. Kids can do a lot more than we think we, they can do. Uh, and, and they will usually rise up to the expectations that we place for them, provided they're not so unrealistic that we're provoking them to anger, which is a sin on our part. And you can, make, you can even make work fun and play fun music. You know, while you're cleaning the house and all kinds of goofy stuff you could make up. Just get the, get the work done, you know. I mean, God worked for six days and then he rested the seventh day. And um, it's a pattern for us. You know, and by the way, God told Adam and Eve to work before the sin. Before sin entered the world. So if you've been convinced that, that you have to go to work every day because of the fall. You're wrong. You might have a nasty boss because of the fall. We were created to work. Uh, and God is the hardest worker of all. One of the verses I love in the Bible is that God works for those who wait for him. God works for those who trust in him. God is always working. He's always working on our behalf. And uh, God then is in Christ. God has redeemed work. 
you know, work is so much more joyful when we know that we're working for the Lord and not just for a paycheck. When we understand the truth of Colossians 3, you know, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. You know, before I was called to be a pastor, I was a Finnish carpenter, and I remember this one cabinet shop in Kansas City where I worked, and my, my boss was nasty. He was a professing Christian, which made it worse. And he was always talking about Jesus, and he was a really nasty boss. And, you know, what kept me going there every day and doing the work and not complaining was knowing I wasn't ultimately working for him. And at the end of the day, it didn't matter if I could please him, which seemed impossible. At the end of the day, what mattered was I showed up on time with a good attitude and I worked as unto the Lord faithfully. And I could leave with a good conscience knowing that, Lord, I worked for you today. And, you know, sometimes we are in good employment situations and sometimes we're in really bad employment situations. But just to remember that we're working for the Lord. So what are some examples of how we can kind of meld these things together? Um, well, let me give you, you are awesome. Because that would be the popular thing to say today. Or we could say something like, buddy, that was excellent. Isn't God awesome for giving you the ability that you have in sports? Isn't it amazing that God gave you these natural abilities to glorify him, to serve him? Or when one of my daughters uh, won a swim meet, you know, I could have said, sweetie, you're amazing, your swimming is awesome. Or I could say, sweetie, I am so grateful to the Lord that he gave you this ability and that you have such a diligent work ethic. You're working so hard, practicing so hard, and he's rewarding you for your faithfulness. You see how you can, we can just turn the wording a little bit from what the world says and what our kids are hearing nonstop is, you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome. Create your own life. Create your own identity. Be your own person. Be, follow your heart. You know, do all these things that the world is constantly saying to our kids. Instead, we can say, isn't God awesome? And isn't he good? that he did this for you and he's doing this in you. Because it's not wrong for us to praise our kids. That's not unbiblical. I mean, read the first chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul even affirmed the worst church in the New Testament. A church that was filled with problems just overflowing with problems. And yet, in the very first chapter, he affirms that he sees evidence of God at work in their life. And, and that's, that's been helpful to me back into more of a balance whereby I can rightly affirm my children and praise them when they glorify God. That's a good thing to do. And don't praise them you know, independently of God, of course, because God is the one who who is doing anything in our life that is praiseworthy. Um, but let's not be these stodgy, grumpy, 
ultra-critical, rigid, legalistic kind of Christian parents. Let's be joyful. Let's be honoring to the Lord. And let's tell the kids, you know, when we see works of God in their life, let's affirm them for that. You know, that same son that I referred to earlier that I had to correct about the way he was speaking to his siblings, I've noticed a real change in the way you're talking to your siblings. I see love. I see, I hear appreciation. You building them up, not tearing them down. I just want you to know I really appreciate that. And I thank the Lord for the work that he's doing in you. You know, so I think spontaneous affirmation is really helpful. I mean, don't we all get really encouraged when someone just spontaneously says to us, you know, what you did and said last Sunday after the service really blessed me. It really helped me and encouraged me. Let's not just give affirmation after they've done everything we told them to do. Oh, great job, buddy. You checked off everything on the list. Let's surprise them with praise. Let's surprise them with affirmation. You know, like the other day, um, I love to mow the lawn. I know you probably think I'm a really weirdo. But I just, you know, for a pastor who's always in the books and, 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 and doing other kinds of stuff, for me, mowing the lawn is therapeutic. You know, um, for want of a better word, it just, it really is, you know, and especially now we have a larger property and I can sit on, on my rider, I can put on my Bose headphones and I can listen to an audiobook or music while I'm mowing the lawn. Um, and so I'm to the point where even though I have sons that I've trained to the mow the lawn, sometimes I'm selfish and I take that job back from them because I just really like to do it. But this week I couldn't. I, I just had too much on my plate, and we had all these leaves that we, you know I like to mulch up in in the fall, so that they don't kill the lawn over the winter. And so I had my son mow the lawn, and he did just like a flawless job on it. I mean, there were no leaves left anywhere. They were all mowed into. So he wasn't doing it to be praised by me. He was doing it because it was a job I gave to him. But you can see the countenance. And the face of our children change when we surprise them with praise. And it can be so encouraging, just like you and I need to be encouraged. So we need this Godward look um, that, that then leads us to affirm the works of God in, in the lives of others. Well, we've got a couple minutes here, right before we break? So let me just comment on a couple of these questions that were given to me uh, earlier by Keith, questions that have been... Um, turned in. Uh, the first one is if a child sins against a mother which is requiring a spanking and the father is a witness to the offense, should the mother still be the one to administer the discipline or should the father? In that case, no question, the father is the one who should do that. Because he's a witness, he's present, he ought to take, take charge, be the leader, but also he ought to be defending the honor of his wife who was dishonored by the child. We talk about that here, um, importance of the role of the father. Um, Dad's not always home, okay? So um, there have been times, not that many, because we we really tried to avoid this 
common thing that I heard, not from my parents, but I would hear it from my friends saying, uh, or their, their mom saying, you just wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> you know, and the mother did nothing to correct. You just wait till your dad gets home. And the problem was, when dad got home, nothing was followed through on. It was just an empty threat. And so the children were raised just hearing these threats. So what we chose, she needed to talk to me about it when I got home, and then I needed to also deal with the child. For nine years in, in Sheboygan, we lived uh, in a house in the parsonage connected to the parking lot of the church. So the kids laugh about it now, but um, I'm sure they weren't laughing then. But how sometimes mom would hand them the paddle and say, walk over to church and tell your dad why you need a spanking. <laughs> Can you imagine how long that walk was <laughs> across that relatively small parking lot? <laughs> you know? um, so, you know, just you got to understand that, you know, as a couple, what, what offenses um, are serious enough that it does need to be addressed when dad gets home from work. Um, so there's balance in all of that. There's an understanding and balance. Mothers, question without any further questions. Uh, grandparenting tips for long-distance relationships. Well, we have, um, as uh, Kirk said, we have seven living grandchildren. Um, five of them are here in Wisconsin. Well, we live 500 miles east in Cleveland, Ohio. So we cherish the opportunities, like we had yesterday, to go to the kids' Christian school and and take part in their Thanksgiving meal. But how do we parent, um, I would say, or grandparent from a distance? Um, I'm not sure we've learned exactly how to do that in the best way. We do it, I would say, chiefly by encouraging the, their parents, by building up the, the parents and encouraging them. Um, and then also, of course, having contact with the children, whether it's FaceTiming. That's that's a real blessing to be able to see kids' faces. Um, usually they'll come to Ohio for a week at some point in the summer, and so we get to, to really love on them, and they get to play in our yard, and, and we get to build birdhouses together like we did this last summer, and they all took a birdhouse home. So there's five more birdhouses in Wisconsin now <laughs> you know, because, of, because of that. Um, we... I have for 37 years, that's how old our oldest is, I have bought a book for each of my children for Christmas. Um, so I, I guess I've filled a lot of libraries. But um, I still do that. And since we've had grandchildren, I buy them a book as well. And I write a note in the book. And um, there's always one biblically-based kind of book. Sometimes I'll get them two books. I'll get them just a fun, generic kind of book as well. Um, and not only give them, but I do primarily give them Christian books, good, solid Christian books. Um, write them notes, send them, that really helped me. Grandparenting with Grace. Larry McCall is the author. Grandparenting with Grace. It's a wonderful little book. It's not a massive thing. All right. Um, 